Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. How's it going, Lance? It's going very, very well. How are you? Today? Two berries. Yeah, out of that well, one. It's okay. A very nice day. Good. Good. Sun's out. It's a little bit cold, but it's nice to be nestled here. It's very, very Wormtown. nice. And uh, today we have a fun, a, a nice interview with Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. And she is a, a person with an amazing story with uh, her experience, personally experienced uh, violence right to her face, right, right yeah. to her family. And that's what is the genesis of her interest in true crime and her advocacy towards victims. Yeah, absolutely. She does a great show. So check that out. True crime fan club and uh, hope you enjoy the interview before we throw it to that. We just wanted to tell you briefly about what's going on with crawl space and the back catalog. Um, You may or may not have noticed if you listen on Apple podcasts, but the older episodes have been taken off of the Apple Podcasts feed. They are still available, but they are on Stitcher Premium. So if you go to stitcher.com slash premium and use code FRAMES, you'll get a discount on the Stitcher Premium monthly fee of four ninety nine. Yep, you get the first month for free. You said that, right? I didn't say that. You get the first month for free, and then it's a it's a premium discount of four ninety nine a month after that. And you get the shows without ads. So this yes. is a win. And it's not just Crawl Space that you get. You, you have access to all of the exclusive shows that Stitcher Premium offers. Yeah, it's a really good deal, especially if you love comedy albums. They have a lot of comedy albums, but also, Lance, more of what we're doing. We have Empty Frames Season 2 is airing exclusively on Stitcher Premium right now. Which is awesome because we take a break from the Isabella Stewart Guardian Museum heist and we talk about other significant moments in art history, art culture, and art crime. And so far, it's been great. It's so been really far, fun. It's been a really fun uh, series to do. Six episodes and possibly a bonus seventh one, but we got to convince somebody to do that. It will go to the public feed, the Apple Podcast and every other public uh, feed, six months after it airs on Stitcher Premium. So you won't miss it completely if you can't afford the Stitcher Premium uh, cost. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Uh, what, what do you, how, how can you take down these episodes, uh, these Brianna Maitland episodes, or, or these comments are, are valuable? Well, the comments are still there. YouTube, uh, these episodes are still there. So if you need this info right now, go there. But we highly recommend going to Stitcher Premium and getting these ad-free episodes. And also, Lance... This is good. The cherry on top here. We're doing creator's commentary for one of our other podcasts, Missing Maura Murray. The early episodes of Missing Maura Murray were something that we talked about internally and even on the show in later episodes that they're sort of cringe, cringeworthy for us. No be- doubt about it. Because of the information that we had at the time and how we had to work our way through, navigate through some some bad information in order to get to the other side. And it's a journey. It's a journey. And those episodes were recorded more than three years ago. We, we are now 90 plus episodes deep in Missing Maura Murray. So we're talking about right now, we're going through and recording creators' commentary over the old episodes. So we've done the first five or six so far and it's really fun it's interesting i think we're learning something and i think the listener would learn something but ultimately this is for the missing Mora murray mega fan right i would agree with that it's it's sort of twofold or i might go into threefold here instead of just addressing how cringeworthy they are and 
we have to keep them up there because it's a journey. We now have the opportunity and the, and the listener has the opportunity to go back and hear our thoughts now based on all the information that we've gathered over the past three or four years, which is inclusive of listener feedback. And and we do, you know, we take it lightly at some points, but there are moments where we listen and we say, oh, that wasn't entirely accurate. Here's what we know now. So as far as the the missing more Murray super fans and anyone who's super involved with the case, this is this is important information. We, we finally have the opportunity to go back and and say this wasn't entirely accurate. And this is what we need to say now. Correct some errors and uh, maybe even some self-depreciating uh, humor, Lance. Actually, maybe a lot of it. Uh, we kind of uh, punish ourselves a little bit. Uh, rightly so, I would say. But um, I think some of that might be even a little bit humorous for people out there. So hope you like that. Also, we're doing this Patreon page, Lance. Patreon.com slash Podcast. Check it out. We're doing a variety show. And it's basically a bunch of the segments that we filmed throughout the last month uh, strung together. And then we're going to record some intros and things like that. And we're also going to have our friends on, uh, Tommy and Larry. A couple of guys who, they're a little rough around the edges at times, but you know what? They have some pretty interesting things to say, and they have a really unique interview style that really gets to the heart of the subject and gets the most out of their guests. Yeah, it so. works, but it's only on Patreon for now. So check it out, $5 a month, patreon.com slash podcast. Okay, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Anything else, Lance? I just want to say one more thing about Lainey. She is one of the organizers of the True Crime Podcast Festival 2019, July 19th. It's at the Marriott downtown Chicago on the Magnificent Mile, which they're going to rename that the Crawl Space Mile. Crawl Space Mile after, after we go. So check that out. The website is TCPF, True Crime Podcast Festival 2019 2019 com and just find out what that's all about and maybe you reserve some tickets to go and we can have a good time on July 13th, 2019. That'd be great. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the chat with Lainey. Welcome to Crawl Space, Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Nice Tuesday. <laughs> it is a nice Tuesday. Thank you for joining us here in the Crawl Space studios. You can uh, take a look around. This is our black box, and we're comfortably <laughs> nestled here outside. Yes, I have a, my uh, own black box. I yes. was just going to say, you also have a nice uh, similar decor. Yes. <laughs> Soundproof curtains, are the, is that what that is? Yes. Okay, great. That's what we got rocking, too. Yeah, it's good yeah. for absorbing sound. Yes. Yeah, your sound is great, too. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about, about your show and uh, how, how you do it and why. <laughs> so I started True Crime Fan Club two years ago this October, and I really started it by discovering what a podcast was Almost three years ago, I was listening to NPR to be cool. was one of those people. <laughs> I was like, I don't really know what NPR is, but I'm going to listen to it. Um, and I came across Snap Judgment and Glenn Washington had actually said something about Apple Podcasts or iTunes at the time. And I was like, what's a podcast? You mean I can listen to this nonstop as much as I want to? And then I was like, I wonder if they have true crime. 
And they did. And I listened to Generation Y and I was, you know, sending them case suggestions and they were always like, thanks, but, you know, they're super bogged and they've been doing it forever. So they didn't really have an opportunity to do any of them. And I was like, you know what, I could just do this. And so I decided to start my own show with the help of uh, Marissa from The Vanish. She coached me a lot through everything as a person she had no clue about. <laughs> so it did not, <laughs> you know, turn into a stalker thing until after I met her. And um, yeah, I just decided to do that. So I just follow a storytelling format and I pick cases that are local to me from the Dallas area or um, more obscure cases that haven't really been covered by other podcasts. And I just try and put the put the perspective of the victim into the show. So I try to elicit the feelings and sentiments that the victim may have felt or that the um, person, i.e. the killer, may have felt during this time and kind of what drives them to do that. Because I was always interested in the psychology of it, like what drives people to do this and the fact that they existed in this in our world was mind boggling to me. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Before we get into the subject matters uh, and the topics of your episodes, I just mm -hmm. have a, a quick observation that might be a, a question as well. I wonder how many people start that way, where you said you listened to a couple of the uh, Generation Y episodes and you said, I can do this because I have these these cases and uh, I, that I want to cover on my own and I'd like to hear this done, so why don't I just do this? I wonder how many people actually start that way and are as successful as you've been. How many episodes do you have? Oh, somebody just asked me this the other day. I think I'm about 50 or so. Right. I wonder how many more. people just stop at like three because they realize the work that yeah. goes into it. Yeah, that's a good call. We call it pod fading in this business. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I like that. What's the opposite of that? Uh, success. <laughs> Mad money. <laughs> yeah. Mad money. No, I'm just kidding. But how do you manage to uh, maintain a positive attitude? You're on with us now and you're smiling and laughing. Uh, Tim and I were listening to your show over the past few weeks, and uh, if it wasn't for Marley, the dog that I'm dog-sitting in my car, I probably would have driven <laughs> off the road. It's pretty... It, there's some darkness. No, I, there's some darkness there. Yeah, no, I... We... This is so funny. We were just talking about this, me and um, a couple of friends of mine. They asked, you know, I listened to a few of your episodes, and I can't do it, and I'm sorry. You know, I support you, but I just can't. It just... I've been thinking about one case you covered for days, and I was like, really? I don't... I think it's because I'm so fascinated by it that I feel it needs to be out there because, you know, like I said earlier, these people exist in real life and I am not a sugarcoat type of person. I'm like, you, you know, we want to make you aware of what's happening. And a lot of these people sure meet them and it's because of maybe their lifestyle or just the circumstances that they're in. I, I try to 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 maintain positivity because I I listen to true crime all day like I listen to podcasts from beginning like the start of my day through my work day etc and I'm just so fascinated by it so I just think that maybe it takes a certain type of person to be able to to listen to and absorb these cases and not have it affect them in a way that you know impacts their day I, I would say that if you are that type of person that you should you know listen sparingly <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Because it say... is hard. It's really difficult, I think, to hear these tragic stories. And you're listening to something that happened to somebody on the worst day of their life and their family's worst day. So it's really important to approach it sensitively, but to also kind of put respect back into the victim and 
And I think that's why I've seen a lot of change in, in the way that podcasters are covering the victims. They're focusing more on their history and their childhood and stuff like that. And that's what I really appreciate about kind of the shows that are, are, are doing that. And you said that you approach it in a storytelling way, but you don't ever you don't ever make any of the violence uh, gratuitous and you don't exploit the the victim or the family. You you, very matter of fact, very matter of fact, like you said, you don't sugarcoat it. And that Mm -hmm. makes the actual moment that that incident more impactful, at least for me to hear it delivered without without music in the background, without some sort of creepy, um, you know, post-production element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I made the mistake at first doing that when I first produced um, the few episodes. I I thought music would make it more creepier and things like that. But I realized that, you know, it does. The stories don't need that. It, it's scary and, you know, terrifying on its own. It doesn't need that kind of production element to it. Um, and, and I'm not knocking pods that do that at all. But I just don't think How that that's you. the format that I'm interested in for my show. Yeah. How do you decompress, though, personally? Because, like, uh, like uh, as we said, this subject matter gets really dark, and um, you know th- that's one of the most common questions we get during interviews: mm-hmm. is how do you deal with all this darkness? So, I throw it to you. Maybe we can commiserate a little bit. How do you? How do <laughs> Probably you deal not. With that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I watch a lot of trashy reality TV. There you go. Um, so <laughs> that's my that's my thing. I love. <laughs> Um, kind of watching train wrecks in other ways, um, even if they're fabricated and <laughs> not real. I I um, just, I don't know why I love that stuff so much. It just helps you kind of focus on something else. Um, I don't watch a lot of true crime television just because I, you know, get all of that in my podcast. So I watch a lot of reality TV and um, I listen to kind of other happier podcasts or more human element type of podcast. So like, is this really happening is one of my favorite shows. Those hit on different topics. And uh, where should we begin is another one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. That's more of like a fly on the wall for a marriage counseling type of session. And it's really interesting. So that's kind of how I I decompress and I play with my dogs too. (laughs) Good. Yeah. You need... (laughs) Need to to break it up a little bit, and uh, yes. I, I can't listen to true crime podcasts all the time. I listen to a lot of co- some comedy and a lot of sports, actually fantasy football. Um, oh. That that kind of keeps me uh, away from it a little bit. What about you, Lance? I like to uh, delve into. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think just to go on the other end of that spectrum and and listen to comedy stuff, listen to good stories about something that uh, happened that someone overcame. I like that a lot. I like, uh, you know, the underdog type story. So I just like to distract myself that way and listen to stories of people who have survived something Mm. like Y2K. (laughs) (laughs) We're all survivors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we looked at your website and uh, so you're a survivor. So can you tell us a little bit about that if you don't mind talking about it? Yeah. Um, So I, my first experience with any type of criminal element happened when I was around seven or eight years old. And Dallas itself back in that time, which was, I'm not, I don't want to talk about my age, um, 20 or so years ago. Roughly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, roughly around that time, um, you know, was experiencing a crime spike and things like that. So I came from a very uh, poor family. So the car that we had was probably on its last legs anyway. And we had, I think, 
either the engine had overheated or we were out of gas. And so we had to pull over on a really busy section of 635, which was one of our major highways here or is one of our major highways. And it was really late at night, probably around nine or 10. And my two older brothers and I were sitting in the back seat. I was asleep and my mom and her boyfriend um, were obviously in the front seat. So my mom's in the passenger side while her boyfriend goes to, I think, either call for somebody to come and get us or to get gas. I can't remember which one it was, but I do remember kind of my brother, you know, softly pushing me to wake up. And when I woke up, I saw that there was a guy on the passenger side with a gun pointed at my mom's head. And he, there was another guy kind of catty corner to him who was pointing a gun towards me and my brothers. And he was basically telling my mom to like give her all of give him all of her jewelry and stuff because my mom had a lot of gold jewelry at the time and you know she gave him everything and it was pretty quick you know it was give me this and then they ran off somewhere over the culvert and and that was it and I wasn't really scared I didn't understand the situation at the time so I had no idea like how left it could have gone if my mom had, you know, put up a fight or if they just decided like, hey, we don't want any witnesses and let's just get rid of these people. Um, So I was actually pretty giddy because we saw the cops coming and I was like, wow, the cops are here. And I was like, you know, telling them my name's my name's Lainey, my name's Lainey, because <laughs> they were asking everybody's information. And I just didn't get it. You know, my mom was crying. My brothers were pretty somber and it wasn't until I, you know, matured and really realized the gravity of the situation. And I remember telling my mom when I was that age, around seven, that she could have my, you know, my gold earrings and my necklace and stuff. I said, you know, you can have my stuff if you want it. Um, but yeah, that was my first brush. And then, um, you know, I've I've been through other things that are a little bit more personal that have um, change the way I approach these stories um, because I insert myself and how I felt about certain situations um, into them. And and I think that that kind of offers me a unique perspective in that sense. Do you ever get comments where people say, uh, you know, if you're talking about a missing person and they say, well, what are the odds that something random like that could happen? And you have direct experience with that randomness. You know, your car mm-hmm. breaks down and it's completely random that these people find your broken down car. The The series of mm-hmm. events that happened to, to lead up to that is incredibly random. Do you ever use that story for people and say, hey, this this does happen? Um, I, I don't use this story specifically. Um, I think because and, you know, I've talked to Justin and Aaron from Gen Y quite a bit about this because they get a lot of. Um, emails, you know, that aren't very nice to them at all because of the way they approach their cases and stuff or the way they offer their opinions. I think that I've been able to avoid a lot of that because I'm not offering any any opinions in the cases. I'm just telling you the story and it's up to you kind of what to make it. But um, at CrimeCon, I think last year, there were people who had made those comments like, um, I think it's probably like the spouses and they're like, you know, yeah, she freaks herself out, even though this probably wouldn't happen. I mean, I think I had somebody say uh, somewhere around Marissa's table, because Marissa covers a bunch of missing pr- people's cases, um, that it only happens to people who put themselves in those situations. And I was like, that's not true at all. It, you know, it's completely 
random as like we were I, I used that story in particular as like we were held at gunpoint and, you know, we didn't have a special life circumstance that made that happen. You know, my mom wasn't into drugs or she wasn't a sex worker like this guy was implying. You know, I was like, it, it can be random. You could walk out in the parking lot and somebody could hold you up right now just because you happen to cross their path, you know. Um, so I, I don't get a lot of that, thankfully, but I know that there are a lot of podcasters who do get that kind of uh, feedback. It is crazy. You just said that people will say pe- anyone who ha- is a victim of this most likely put themselves in that situation. And mm-hmm. we recently talked with Francie Hakes, who is a uh, huge advocate for child safety. And she was a former uh, U.S. assistant uh, DA. And she she said something that was really surprising to us that we've been sort of ruminating on in the meantime, which is people don't the, the statistics for people becoming abusive or becoming violent don't le- don't don't lean so much in the direction of the of being a product of their environment as we typically think and i noticed when listening to your episodes there's there's a few of them that talk about people who have grown up in a in an abusive relation or an abusive environment had abusive parents had criminal parents and then they go on to be criminals themselves despite their best efforts what do you what do you make of that 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 if it's not it's not statistically proven if you have grown up in a in a bad environment that you will become bad yourself right i'm an example of that i had a terrible growing you know childhood i think um and i had the opportunity to take a different path and i chose not to because i saw what that path would end up being for me um but i think it's a mixture of nature and nurture right so if They are growing up in kind of a really abusive home or, you know, a criminal type of home where their parents are criminals. Um, Then there's that opportunity to say, okay, well, that's the only life I know because that's the only life I've ever seen. But you also have the parents who are loving despite, you know, their faults and stuff like that, who who try despite what they're going through and what they're doing in their lives, try to help their children do something different. Uh, You see that all the time um, with with kids who are growing up in those types of environments. But I think that there's just something within a person. And I don't think you can ever call it. I don't think you can ever say, well, you grew up here. This is exactly how you're going to be. Um, I think that it takes the support of your family or the strength within yourself to not you know, want to go down that environment. I learn from other people's mistakes. That's what I've always done. So I've seen my brothers, um, they're a lot better, thankfully. But, um, you know, I've seen my brothers take on things that they shouldn't have taken on when they were younger, getting into trouble, going to halfway homes, things like that. Um, And now my brother, my oldest brother's, you know, been in the military for 20 years. He changed his life around 18 years old. And so he had the opportunity and he experienced some terrible things and did some terrible things in in the sense of like, you know, like dealing drugs and all this other stuff versus, um, and that's not my older brother. That's my younger brother, my middle brother. Um, you know, they did these types of things, but they eventually saw how that would end up for them, that they would likely be in prison or something like that. So, um, they just decided to turn their lives around and, you know, unfortunately not everybody has that, that trigger in them to do that. Yeah. One example is uh, an episode you recently did, uh, Joseph Duncan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he, he st- sort of started out on this, um, this kill spree, I guess, uh, 
as revenge, right? For how yes. he was treated as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he his whole thing was that he was mistreated by his mother. Again, there, those accounts are very differing between the siblings and things like that. But um, at least two siblings have corroborated that their mother used to, um, you know, beat them severely and degrade them and things like that. And so he basically chose to do this to prove a point. So he initially had gotten in trouble because he, um, you know, was explicit with some children. And after that, he decided, well, now I'm just going to go through and kill them to teach this to teach society a lesson for getting me in trouble because they didn't bother, you know, listening to my side, which was completely um, delusional, in my opinion. Um, And so he basically just went on this crime spree to prove a point to society that if you want a monster, I'll give you a monster. And, you know, he chose some of the worst things in the world to do. Yes, he really did. But this is a great uh, example of it being a combination of nature versus nurture because his two siblings didn't grow up to be killers, right? I mean, unless right. I'm mistaken, uh, it, it, you know. Uh, and, and this guy wasn't dumb. His his blog was actually kind of well-written. Like, he, you know, he had a decent vocabulary. He knew what he was mm-hmm. doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there was a point in this episode that disturbed me greatly uh, that after he killed Dylan... He told Shasta that there was too much evil at the campsite, and we have to we have to move on. Do you think that's mm-hmm. just an excuse? Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. It, it, he doesn't really believe that there's too much evil. Like, no. and what's the difference? I don't know if you want to entertain us with this this dialogue, but it, it struck me that you said that he decided if the if society wanted a monster, I'll show you a monster. So that's is that just a hundred percent ego, or is he is he is is he just making an excuse for yes. a tendency that he knows he can't avoid. He, I think 100% making an excuse. So he kind of reminds me a little bit of Albert Fish, who I covered in my first episode. It hit it strong out the gate when I went there. <laughs> Jesus. Go big or go home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He used a lot of um, religious excuses, right? So he um, abused himself. Albert Fish abused himself to be closer to God or to be like God. Um, And I think that that's kind of what Joseph Duncan was doing. He was using um, his religion to justify his actions and say, well, you know, Jesus was persecuted. I will be persecuted the same way because, um, you know, society chose not to listen to me the same way society chose not to listen to Jesus. So he's he's trying to elevate himself into this God complex, which I I see um, a lot of kind of ritualistic killers do. They elevate themselves here so that they can make excuses for the behavior. Because if you look down deep into it, you're just a bad person who likes to do bad things. And he he enjoyed it. It's not like he he felt bad about any of it when he's confessing to these crimes. He's very matter of fact and like, yes, this is what I did. Here's where their bodies are. This is how I chose to do it. Um, And even in his blogs, too, as much as he tries to kind of veil it with um, his religion, you can see between the lines that he's just searching for an excuse to justify his behavior. Yeah, he's manipulating the reader, mm-hmm. I, I think, is what he's doing. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it varies on all levels of, of uh, crazy, right? You you have right. these frenzy killers like the one that's in the Warwick Slasher, which mm-hmm. is a, an incredibly Craig disturbing. Price. Yeah, that's an incredibly disturbing story. That 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 monster stabs... He he's, he killed an eight-year-old, stabbed an eight-year-old how many times? Oh, God. Uh, probably, I think, over 23 to 40 times within the whole family. 
yeah, that's like a frenzy killing. That is that is just out of control rage. And mm-hmm. then you have someone like Joseph Duncan who is trying to, you know, compare himself to God. He's trying to you know, show his godliness, which is like incredible range right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the most tragic part of your episode on Joseph Duncan, though, I think was at the end when you said that Shasta, uh, who was a female survivor, uh, was the um, the boy Dylan's sister who witnessed his death Mm -hmm. and some awful things and abuse uh, in the woods there at the hands of Joe Duncan. But the most sad part was that she had run-ins with the law and assault charges. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't help think, well, how would living with this monster in the woods, seeing your brother murdered, what would that do to you? How, How would you avoid that? Right. It, it, we were very hesitant to include that part, but I felt that it was necessary to show that a lot of people remember Shasta, especially maybe a couple of years ago when she was doing really well. She went on Crime Watch Daily and gave an interview about everything that occurred. And she seemed so well put together, so strong. And it was shortly after that that kind of her life began to spiral out of control. A lot of it had to do with the drugs she, you know, was doing. She was um, doing methamphetamines and things like that. And she made poor decisions as a mother to put that around her children, you know. Um, And it's unfortunate, but you see kind of the long lasting effects of this that she needs to be in counseling pretty much every single, you know, day to deal with the gravity of the loss and, and the things that happen. Because everything that we know about what happened came because Shasta said it. And I'm sure that there's still stuff that isn't public record that's even more um, detrimental and horrifying to her that she has to live with privately. You know, um, I just think that it was important to show that piece so that the world kind of knew that, yes, she is a strong survivor. I don't like to look at her as a victim because she's such a strong person and she makes mistakes and she's going to tumble in this way. But she's she's turned it around. You know, she's off of her probation now. She's clean. She's engaged and she has regained custody of her two children. So she she knows what she needs to do to to maintain, um, you know, a positive lifestyle. And that's not to say that she may go back to it, you know, someday or she may experience another bump in the road. But her experience and her brush with the law after her, um, you know, recovery just shows that there's a lot of work for her left to do. Do you uh, have a personal relationship with any of the people, any of the victims that you cover? There was an episode I covered a child predator that had come to Dallas and Plano. And one of the little girls, Christy, um, who was murdered, she actually went to um, a school nearby and she was found in a field directly across from my elementary school. So um, that's when I was in school. So that's really the only ties I have to that case. Um, but usually most cases I don't. My mom has covered a couple of episodes in my case, um, in my show that are personal stories from people she knew. But other than that, I don't have a true connection to any of the stories that I've told. 
that's probably for the best because if you're delivering <laughs> these <laughs> if you're delivering these uh these accounts and you're trying to be educational with them and show that there's some some light at the end of the tunnel you probably should do it as matter of factly as possible and not have an emotional attachment to them right i agree do you think that listening to true crime podcasts makes you safer I think it makes you more aware. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you still have a responsibility to yourself and your own personal safety to do whatever you feel makes you safer. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean like carrying a gun and a knife around and and showing it off to people and saying like, I'm protected, leave me alone. Um, But I think just being aware of your surroundings. I learned that very early on. I did karate throughout my elementary and middle school years. Um, and my instructor always told me to be aware of your surroundings. Don't ever get lazy with where you're at. Always look around to see who's near you and things like that. And so that's something I've carried with myself. You know, I, I taught it to my nieces and things like that. Um, I don't know that it necessarily makes you safer. Some people find that they are more paranoid after listening to it and are a little bit more suspicious. I just think that there's a healthy balance to, you know, you know where you're at. As long as you know where you're at and you're keeping in contact with the people who you need to be kept in contact with. Like I tell my husband where I'm going and things like that. I don't ever just go somewhere without telling someone where I'm going and what my plans are. So if you're listening to this and you have your earbuds in and you're, you're jogging outside, stop, take a look around, make sure that, uh, make sure you're, you're surrounded by safe people and no one's uh, suspicious and following you. And then you can continue jogging really, really fast. Yeah. Pick up the pace. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, A recent episode you covered was uh, Clarence Bradley. Can you tell us a little bit about this story? This is really wild. Yeah. So I have never covered a wrongful conviction case. And I was really intrigued by this story. um, And I'm very familiar with the town that it occurred in. Um, A lot of towns in East and Southeastern Texas have a history of racial discrimination. Um, It's huge. Uh, Vider, Texas is one of the most notoriously racist towns in Texas. Um, And James um, Byrd was actually murdered nearby. Um, He was the man who was dragged by the truck and the chains and things like that. And his body parts were like spewing all over the place. Um, But Clarence Bradley, I found very interesting because of I had read a quote from the sheriff, and I mentioned it in there where he said, somebody has to hang, and since you're the N-word, it's going to be you. And I just thought, like, wow, the brazenness of that Texas Ranger to say something like that out in the open with no, you know, just with the nonchalant attitude was astounding to me. And I was like, I want to dig into this and see what was really going on. And um, thankfully, with the help of Suzanne St. John and Haley Gray, I had the opportunity to really... Um, get the full history of Conroe and see all the other things that were going on in that town, not just for Clarence, but for other people um, who were, you know, a victim of racial violence there. So he was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape and eventually got um, freed and acquitted of the charges, but he didn't receive any compensation for it. And he was promised that whenever he was released, he wouldn't have to pay any um child support and they ended up charging him for all the back child support that he was in there for seven years. The state, the state charged him for that? Yes. After he was formally acquitted. 
Like exonerated. Right. Yes. Wow. It's insanity. How long was he in yeah. prison for? Seven and a half years. It's insane. And he actually helped create the bill in Texas that would give compensation to inmates, but he didn't qualify for it, which is another crazy thing to me. Wait, he helped create the bill and then he didn't qualify for the bill that he helped create? Correct. Based on his experience. Yeah. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. That's <sighs> that's uh, a legality if I've ever heard one. One more time. <laughs> yep. One more time. You have said something that physically <laughs> makes me upset yes, and shake say your head out, and... out loud like I can't believe that. Welcome uh, to Texas, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so he was he was released um from death row, right? Yes. And that that's not like a, a thing that happens quite often, right? No. I mean, once you are on Texas death row, good luck getting off of it. Um you may have seen, I don't know if you have seen, but Darley Routier's case is uh, back in review a little bit. Some ev- new evidence is being tested. There's a lot of people who think that she did it, a lot of people who think she didn't. Um, but she's been trying to get off the of death row ever since she was sentenced. And her case has been ongoing for almost a decade or over a decade, at least almost two. Um, so yeah, once, and I think you see this everywhere, once you're in the court system and you've been sentenced, it's really hard to get that uh, overturned, even if it's wrong. Yeah. As such a tall task to take on. So, you know, props to you for that. Is that something that you want to keep doing uh, more exclusively is focusing on wrongfully imprisoned? Uh, you're shaking your head. No, <laughs> no, Okay. <laughs> no, I it, I really don't have a theme with what I do. And I think that that's what I like. I, I just find cases that are interesting to me. And if it sticks out to me, then I'll do it. I don't cover missing persons cases. I think I've covered one in the entire two years that I've done it just because I thought it was super interesting. Um, but I, I like completed stories. I like to know the end. And um, I I have a hard time doing it. Maura Murray was actually the first missing persons case that I followed through with the um, with your podcast. And I was like, hopefully there's going to be an end to this. And there really wasn't. I was like, God dang it, Tim. And <laughs> not like yet. A, Sorry. Yeah. Keep. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. obviously not your fault, but yeah. <laughs> it, it really kind of you know, spurned my interest in it. And it's just, I can listen to it. It's just so hard to cover because there's so many unknowns. The uh, missing person case that you covered was Joan from our neck of the woods, correct? Yes. That is a, that is a really unbelievable Mind boggling. Yeah. Give us a little bit of a background on that, if you don't mind. So Joan Risch was a housewife who had disappeared um, kind of mysteriously in, I don't even remember, gosh, it was so long ago, 1940s, I think, right? Something like that, I think, or the 60s. Don't quote me on that. Um, but basically, uh, she had, she was home alone with her two children. She had dropped one of her children off at a neighbor's house and had gone back home and said she had errands that she needed to run. But um, when the neighbor dropped off her child because she hadn't come back to pick her up. She noticed that there was blood on the um, driveway or on the driveway and then the baby was crying. So she went upstairs and saw that, you know, the baby had been alone and that the house was disheveled and there was large amounts of blood. There are varying reports that Joan was seen on a highway bleeding or a woman was seen on the highway bleeding from the legs down and was kind of hunched over, which was so surprising to me that in an era, maybe it was the 50s, because in an era where, you know, everybody would 
stop and help you, not giving it a second thought that this woman who was seen bleeding was offered no assistance. People passed by her, nothing. Yeah, that was uh, one thing that stood out to me was that she was spotted a couple of times and clearly bleeding to the point that the detail was bleeding down her legs. So, I mean, people yeah. saw her. They they saw enough of the detail to know she was bleeding down her legs and clutching her abdomen and yeah. still no one, no one pulled over. And this is on uh, 128, which is uh, 95 or 95. It's a major highway. Yes. And it was just mind boggling to me. I was like, really? I I would expect that behavior now where at least somebody could call 911 and be like, hey, there's somebody who's walking on the highway, but there are no cell phones during that time. So you would have to stop and say, can I help you or something and nothing. So um, an investigation was done and there are conflicting theories and ideas that she either had maybe had an illegal abortion and the physician who completed it had, you know, abandoned her or taken her in his car and discarded her body on the side of the road in a construction pit or that she had left and fled on her own and maybe had cut her hand and, you know, put blood everywhere um, because she was unhappy in her marriage and what she wanted to do. There were some library books that she had checked out about um, disappearing and how to effectively disappear So there's just a lot of conflicting theories. There's been no trace of her since nobody has seen or heard from her. There was a mysterious phone call that was made to the family's home a few days or weeks after she had disappeared. Um, But nobody can confirm that that was Joan. It's a crazy story. And I think that it's a good place for people to start if they are just getting into your podcast. And yeah. if, if you if you were to if I were to suggest one episode to start with, it would probably be that one. Yeah. It was a very weird case. I was like, oh God, this why I can't do these. <laughs> if we hear anything about it being from the area, we'll let you know. Okay. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> so um I just want to uh apologize. I, I pronounced Clarence Brandley's name wrong. I think I called him Bradley a few minutes ago. But uh, can we talk a little bit about how that case wrapped up, how the actual murder investigation happened and uh, the details there? Because I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, so it was an afternoon where there was a volleyball scrimmage taking place at a at Conroe High School and there were four janitors who were present and then the people playing the scrimmage so Clarence was there along with three other janitors um a young woman who needed to use the restroom had approached them and asked where the restroom was and she ran upstairs and there now we know that these reports were inaccurate but they said that Clarence had gone upstairs to where the bathrooms were and, you know, had said, oh, I'm going to change the toilet paper here. And another janitor had seen him and said, well, there's somebody in there. And he's like, "Okay, I'll just go to the men's restroom. And then he sent the remaining three janitors across the way to um, another area of the school to clean up. And he said he'd be over there in a little bit. They say that 45 minutes passed. He came out. He was a little disheveled. He had a towel around his neck. And then he let those four janitors in. Well, as they were closing up the school um, for the scrimmage to be over, they noticed that the the door to the gymnasium had been opened and was left ajar. And some of the girls had run in and said, hey, we're missing somebody from our school. Can you help us find her? And they all did. And supposedly Clarence said, I'm going to check upstairs in the the loft area and took another um, 
janitor with him. And when they did that, they so happened to find the body of this 16-year-old female who had apparently been strangled with a ligature mark around her neck and she um, had her underwear off and it was clear that she had likely been sexually assaulted. So the police were called and the Texas Rangers were also called in because they needed to, they needed assistance. Conroe is very small even today. So their police force wasn't really uh, ready for something like this in terms of the murder investigation that needed to take place. The Texas Ranger that came in had already set his mind that one of the four janitors was guilty. And when he arrived, he noticed Clarence and decided that Clarence was the one who would take the fall for this just off the bat with no um, he hadn't even seen the crime scene or anything like that, hadn't interviewed any of the other three janitors that were with him. He just decided it was Clarence. So um, the police interrogated all um, actually interrogated Clarence first, took him to take a polygraph test. The polygraph examiner who had, I think, 16 years of experience said, there's no way he did this. He passed the test, so he didn't have anything to do with it. And the Texas Ranger basically said, yes, he did. And we're not listening to your exam. And then after Clarence was arrested, he then went to interview the remaining janitors by doing a walkthrough through the school. Um, so they walked through the crime scene and things like that. And it was very casual, like, oh, what did you see? When did you see it? You saw this, right? Um, and one of the janitors really didn't want to play ball with him. And he had accosted him at his home and choked him and said, you're going to say that this is what happened or I will throw you away for life, basically. And so he complied. Clarence's um, Clarence's DNA, or not DNA, blood type wasn't found on the victim. He His blood type didn't match anything that was found on the victim. There were hairs that were found on her that were Caucasian hairs. And Clarence is an African-American male, so his hair did not match. But they didn't care about that at all. And so when his trial came, he was tried in front of an all-white jury because the prosecutor didn't feel that African-American jurors could be unbiased in the situation. So they were um, intentionally excluded from it. So he was tried, or they actually came back with a hung jury. Then they retried him again with an all-white jury for the same exact reason. And he was found guilty of um, murder and rape and was sentenced to death row or to death. And the judge had said, you know, I hope you find peace in this, but you're going to be sentenced to death and gave him his death sentence and wheeled him away. Um in the years that that happened, during the second trial, one of the janitors refused to testify, saying that he couldn't lie anymore. And a woman who was actually involved with one of the janitors had come forward and said, you know, during this uh, during when this happened, he had come and woken me up and said, I just murdered and raped a girl and I got to get out of town before anybody finds out. And she didn't believe him. So she was just like, OK, whatever, because she was actually pregnant by him. He had raped her. And instead of wanting to tell her parents, she decided to move in with him and get married to him. Um, and that just kind of tells you how warped, you know, that whole situation is. It, it It's insane to me. So she's basically the whole reason why Clarence got a retrial and it was discovered all of these things that had happened. The Texas Ranger admitted that he made that statement to Clarence and um, through a long legal process and through 
review of the evidence at the confession of the other two men, Clarence was released. And the two men who were responsible for the young woman's murder were never tried or convicted. So it's officially standing as unsolved? Yes, even though they know. And the judge, the appellate judge, said in his brief that the two men were responsible for it. The um, Conroe DA decided not to pursue it. And so they are free, probably dead now, but um, they were free to live their lives. Wow. And Clarence recently passed away, that's correct? He did, recently in September, yeah. Yes, he did. So it's basically over. Yep. It's incredible. So the family never got justice for their loved one, and um, who knows if those other men went on to offend. There was one of the men um, who wasn't involved in the case, but he had um, been indicted for child pornography. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would bet that James Dexter Robinson, who is this uh, boyfriend uh, who was living with uh, Brenda Medina at the time, mm-hmm. who, who told her that uh, he had committed this murder, uh, I, I would bet money that he did something similar uh, again, reoffended. Um, but I also think that that taking someone's word for what they tell you is very important. I mean, I think that's kind of a good lesson here. Like he told her I killed somebody and I got to mm-hmm. leave and he left and she was like, oh, no, nah, he was just lying to me. He didn't want to re- yeah. stay here and raise this kid with me. But I guess the, the point is listen to people when they tell you things. I mean, what's the worst yeah. that'll happen? You'll you'll report it and then it comes back that they didn't do it. But then it's like, well, why the hell did you even tell me that in the first place? So there's really no harm in in listening and reporting something like that. Yeah. You'll never look stupid. Please report. Yes. Yes, please. (laughs) Is there one case that just can't get out of your head? The one that just you haven't been able to, to get away from? He was responsible for killing or for shooting and disabling Larry Flint. He I was I was really surprised by him. I've got to find his name because um, he he killed with such irregard for anybody. So my researcher who helps me with everything actually recommended this. And at first I wasn't really interested because I was like, oh, I don't want to cover anything with Larry Flint. Like, I feel like that's been done and it's whatever. And then she was like, no, he was like he Larry Flint was just like the tip of the iceberg for this guy. He basically was trying to find purpose in something. So he would travel basically all over the country, trying new religions and trying to find his purpose in life. And he eventually made his way into a neo-Nazi party and was like, here we go. This is where I feel at home and decided that he had a hatred for all minorities, but specifically African-Americans. So he traveled around the country just shooting whoever he saw was black. So he was and he he had he had great marksmanship, which is unfortunate. But um, I think whenever I read that he had parked at a church's chicken and there was a father and son who were cleaning up and he just decided like, oh, they're free and shot them and killed them and left. He approached a couple at a drive through and shot them point blank and walked away. Um, He did it again to teenagers. He saw a white teenager with her African-American boyfriend and shot at both of them because she was basically going against what was right. You know, she shouldn't have been in a multiracial relationship or interracial relationship. Um, So I think just the complete disregard he had, he wasn't even aiming for Larry Flint, which was hilarious to me that he was aiming for the, I think, black 
congressman who was with him. Um, and then he was like, oh, you know what? He's a bad guy, too, because he promotes pornography. And then he shot him. Um, the disregard he had for for human life and just the the opportunities he took were insane to me because I'm so used to, you know, following people who have a strict purpose, who who target a specific victim and say, you know, like this person hurt me. And so I want to hurt them and I want to murder them. They left me, et cetera. But these are people who had absolutely zero interactions with him in life. He just drove his car around and shot them. He shot a family in Oklahoma, you know, just because they were black and, you know, shot at while their children watched their parents die, you know, in front of them, they couldn't do anything. And it it, it boggled my mind. So that case still sticks with me. And I think that's the first case I ever inserted my opinions to tell the listeners how that story had affected me. It's incredible to hear how ignorance can open the door for just pure hatred, you know, and groups like a neo-Nazi group or white supremacists will identify that and they'll just step right in that door because they know that mm -hmm. what they're offering is something that this person's looking for and it just happens that it's it's just hate-filled and it's just rage and it's got no, like you said, purpose. Is that something that scares you the most about what you do? Yes. Is that the randomness yes, and the lack of purpose? that's why I won't cover um, mass shootings or anything like that. My researcher, she's fascinated by those because she's just like, it's so random and so you know, you can walk in a mall and somebody could open fire and you didn't do anything. You're just there shopping for whatever. And that gives me way too much anxiety to think about um, if I had to delve into that research. That's, I think, one element of the true crime genre that I, I can't make myself look into further um, because it, it, you know, it does terrify me. And I think that Every time I go to the movies now, I, I think about that. You know, I sit up in the highest area because I want the best view. And I think, wow, this is going to really impede me from being able to get out if another James Holmes strikes, you know, and, and those things just flash through my mind because I'm just like, how many people are unaware that this is a possibility for them, that this is a possibility for all of us just going to the movies or going to the mall or going to get coffee, things like that. I mean, it's so unfortunate how often it's happening. And where it's happening, that literally, if you were terrified as much as, you know, you could let yourself be, you probably wouldn't step out of your home. Did you want to promote the event in Chicago? So we are hosting, and I'm very excited for this. This came out of a lot of ideas. I really enjoyed CrimeCon. And I liked the idea of Podcasters Row so much that I wanted it to continue. And I was just like, you know what? This is the best part to me. I get to meet my friends and hang out um, with other podcasters and meet a bunch of listeners. So myself and three other hosts got together to plan the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. It's going to happen July 13th, 2019. We are going to be hosted at the Marriott in Chicago on the, uh, what's the mile? The Miracle Mile? Yes. Yes. Okay. Magnificent Mile. That's no, what Oh, it is. sorry. I just said so, yes. <laughs> Miracle Mile. No. Uh, so we are going to be hosted at the Chicago Marriott on the Magnificent Mile. So it's a great um, hotel. We have discounts for the rooms if you're booking. And the tickets right now are at $85. We may have a Black Friday special coming up and a Cyber Monday special coming up. That'll help people um, save on tickets. But it's a great opportunity to meet your favorite podcasters. There's a list if you go to True Crime Podcast Festival 
um, dot com. You can check out the list there. Um, I will be there. There's going to be different panels. Um, and I think that you guys are going to be doing and hosting your own live show or panel at the festival. That would be that would be outstanding. We actually heard that the Magnificent Mile used to be called the Mediocre Mile until you started this uh, this event. So congrats! For, uh, <laughs> it sounded Bravo. a lot better. Sounded a lot better in my head. Bravo! I don't think we can beat yes. that, Lainey. No, you cannot. But we are excited. We have a lot of shows already um, that have signed up. We didn't really do a ton of invitations or saying, "Hey, come and join." A lot of people expressed interest because we were talking about it at CrimeCon. Um, so we do have a confirmed live show with Canadian True Crime and The Trail Went Cold. They are going to be hosting one. We're still in the works on figuring out other live shows and panels just because it's a one day only thing for this year. We want to we want to keep it intimate. We want to make it special for um, the people who choose to show up. But I am excited that you guys are going to be doing a panel there. You have great chemistry and great presence and I know that people love you, so it'll be great to to see you guys do your thing in person. 